0: How's everybody? Good. Good to see you this morning. Good to be gathered together in God's household, uh, giving him praise and celebrating his grace. Uh, I want to add my word of welcome to uh, all of you who are visiting with us online and visiting with us this morning, particularly if you're visiting with us for the first time. And I especially want to welcome um, they're special guests, most of them every Sunday, but some of them are, are with us for the first time this morning. Uh, all the Howard students who are gathered with us this morning. Praise yeah. God. H hey, Come on. They <laughs> just had a, a fall retreat, and uh, from what I could tell on Instagram, looks like y'all had a good time. Like y'all had a good time. I, I uh, saw y'all had some rap battles. I noticed y'all didn't invite me to the battle you scared, say you scared. <laughs> but praise God, we give our praise for campus outreach and our student ministry and the students at Howard. Um, also, a couple other things to uh, celebrate and bring to your attention as we get ready to turn to God's word. Um, today is our sister Sharnay's birthday. And so, yeah, praise God. So holler at Sharnay and wish her a happy birthday. And Lord willing, on Tuesday, if Jesus doesn't come, it'll be our sister Winsor Rodriguez's birthday. And so, yeah, we celebrate with those who are having birthdays. And uh, Pastor Bob we're having so many babies, it's hard to keep count. Uh, or they are. We ain't having them. they having so many babies. The pandemic's been good. Um, there's one more. Yeah, just on yesterday, Colin and Erica Willis gave birth to little Micah Adam uh, Willis. And so we give God praise for the expansion of the Willis family uh, as well. Now, one other thing to bring your attention in the way of announcement uh, is you'll see it printed in the middle of your bulletin, um, but you'll notice there that there is an announcement for um, uh, something called Surviving the Holidays. It's a, it's a one-day, one-session uh, grief-share ministry that our sister Joy and Matthews is organized. It's on Tuesday, November 23rd at 7 o'clock. Uh, the holidays are a time of, of festivities and joy and Thanksgiving and giving. Yes, um, but it's also a time where uh, our grief can be stirred up um, when we have lost loved ones and remember um, remember their their presence and their absence. And so, if that's you this year and you want to gather with some others to process that, think about that, seek the Lord together, uh, then do consider registering for this grief share. Um, studies. is one session, uh, Surviving the Holidays. Reach out to Joya Matthews. She can give you uh, more information as well. Amen? Amen. Well, let me pray, and let's ask the Lord for his help. Father, indeed, we confess, we sing, what a mighty God you are. We think about how powerful and majestic angels are, but they bow before you. They hide their eyes and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And we long for that day when we shall hear the holy, holy, holy and join our voices with angelic beings and cast down crowns at your feet and exalt your name in a manner that is unblemished, pure, and worthy of your beauty. Until then, Lord, we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray, give us a word this morning. Speak to us. Give us a a life-giving word. Help us, O Lord, this morning in our various circumstances, whether high or low or somewhere in between, whether distracted or locked in on your glory, Lord. Whatever is the case, touch each and every individual this morning. Speak to us collectively. Speak to us personally. Give us ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Esther chapter 6, the book of Esther, as we continue our study through this marvelous book uh, in in God's Word. And as you turn there, let me set the context again by by way of a brief review of what we've seen in the previous five chapters. In Esther chapter 1, we open up and we are feasting. A six-month celebration thrown by the king, King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, king of the Persian Empire. And before that chapter is over, we get basically a, a diagram, an a outline of, of a culture that objectifies women and passes a law to oppress women throughout the empire. And so we see the systemic oppression of women. We come to chapter two, this king having gotten rid of his queen in chapter one, decides to get him a new queen. And and we then see more objectification of women. And we see actually a kind of culture that preys upon women sexually. As he takes women, young women from their families and puts them in his harem and forgive me, tries them out one night at a time until he selects his own wife. rape culture in action. And then we come to chapter three and a new person is on the scene, a fellow by the name of Haman, who seems to have climbed the ranks through political scheming and bribery. And he has made it to number two in the land. And he has this beef with a Jewish man named Mordecai. And from that beef with Mordecai, which really has ancient roots all the way back to Israel and the Amalekites, we see in chapter three, the development of systemic racism really. For Haman goes to the king and gets a law passed that on a certain day, all the Jews in the empire from Ethiopia all the way to India would be put to death. So we see a kind of racial and religious persecution being systematized in the law of the land. In chapter 4, Mordecai, who is an official who sits at the king's gate, he's gotten wind of the fact that uh, this plot to kill all the Jews is 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 about to take place. And so he tears his clothes, put on sackcloths and ashes, goes to the king's gate, mourning and crying out. Now, meanwhile, his cousin, whom he raised from childhood who had lost her parents some point earlier raised her like a daughter she is the one that the king had selected to be his new queen her name is Hadassah in the Hebrew we know her by Esther he goes to Esther and he pleads with mm-hmm, Esther yes, to go to the king on behalf of the Jews that they might be spared she she's shaking at first because there's a law no one goes to the king except they have been called you go to the king without being called you run the risk of being put to death. By That's the end week. of Esther chapter four, into mm-hmm. chapter five, she's gotten up her courage. They call a three-day fast. They pray. She appears before the king on behalf of her people. Now, the text that we're in, Esther chapter 6, actually occurs between two feasts. Two feasts and <laughs> Esther has prepared for the king and prepared for his number two man, Haman, which the Bible calls the enemy of the Jews. She's setting up a confrontation. Chapter six is right between those two feasts. They've had one, and Haman leaves that feast on cloud nine. Except that when he sees Mordecai, he's like, nothing I have is worth anything as long as that man is alive. So when our text opens, Mordecai, Esther, and all the Jews are in danger of genocide, of being exterminated in the not-too-distant future. They don't yet know how God is going to deliver them. They have been seeking God in prayer and fasting and lamenting, and they're waiting on God's deliverance. Now, there are some things we need to know about God while we wait on his deliverance. I think there are five in Esther chapter 6. I'm going to give you one one at a time here. Number one, we need to know that God keeps complete receipts. That God keeps complete receipts. We see that in verses 1 to 3. Number two, we need to know that God laughs at his enemies. That God laughs at his enemies. We'll see that in verses four to six. Number three, we need to understand that God gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble, verses seven to 10. And number four, God humbles the proud. He humbles the proud, verses 11 to 13. And number five, that in it all, God has perfect timing. Perfect timing. Look with me in Esther chapter six, beginning in verse one. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who was in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. This is God's word. It's been remarked over and over again, and we have pointed it out as we have thought about Esther, that God is not specifically named or mentioned in this book. And yet his fingerprints are everywhere to be found. The first thing we want to know about God while we are waiting for his deliverance is that God keeps complete receipts. I wonder if any of you are like my wife. Well, Nobody's like my wife, but you know what I mean. Whenever we go to the store and pay for our things at the register, she always wants the receipt put in her hands. She don't want the receipt put in the bags because sometimes bags get thrown away and the receipts with them. If there's any problem with what she has purchased, she wants the receipt so she can go get what she is owed. And so we got receipts in her purse. We got receipts in her wallets. We got receipts all over the house because she might have to give evidence of what's been done. Now, that's what's happening, I think, in verses 1 to 3. The king couldn't sleep, so he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Ancient Persian kings used to basically keep a running history of the the events in their reign. It was one of the ways that they built receipts for themselves to show how great they were. Specifically, verse 2, notice, It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teres, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. There were two officials here who were named specifically who were part of a plot to assassinate the king. We're first told about that in Esther chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. It was Mordecai who had discovered the plot. By that point, Esther was queen. And so Mordecai went to the queen and said, you need to tell the king about this plot. And Esther went and told the king about this plot, giving Mordecai all of the credit. When they investigated the news, they found it to be true and the king's life was saved. And these two men who plotted against him were put to death. Now, one would expect that if you save the king's life, you might get some kind of reward. But right after Esther 2 closes and the king is saved, we're told that this was written in the book, but the very next verse, chapter 3 verse 1, introduces Haman. And Haman seems to come to the rise. The enemy of the Jews step on the scene, begin the plot to destroy them, and it looks again like God's people are overlooked. Now here in Esther chapter 6, The tables are being reversed. Mordecai is remembered for saving the king, and soon Haman will be destroyed. Now pay attention to this, please. God uses secular receipts, secular history, as receipts for his people. Secular history is simply a recording of God's providential actions and workings in the world. Secular history is simply the story of God's common grace. And it is amazing how many times the fate of God's people depends on a secular record, a secular history, or a secular law. This is especially true during the period of history that we're reading about here, during the exile. We see this, for example, in Ezra and Nehemiah. You remember, they are returning from the exile. They are returning from Babylon to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. And when they get back in the land, there's some people who want to cause trouble for them, Sanballat and and his boys. And Sanballat and his boys write the king to say, these Jews now, they are troublemakers. If you let them rebuild this city, it's going to hurt your pocketbook. And for a while, the work is stopped until the Jews appeal to the secular law of Cyrus and the annals are searched. And lo and behold, the law is on their side and they are given permission to finish the work of God. That secular law, that secular history were used by God to protect his people and to advance his kingdom. And as we've seen in Esther, Esther is a book that, that has dramatized for us systemic oppression of women. It's dramatized for us the systemic racism uh, that, was, that, that Jewish people have faced. It's dramatized for us systemic persecution of Jewish people. That injustice is being carried out and documented in secular law and history of the time. So that's where the evidence is. That's where the receipts are. And Christian, this is one reason why you don't want to listen to any Christian who attempts to gaslight you about today's systemic racism by saying, show it to me in the Bible. That's subterfuge. That's distraction. Why do we have to show you systemic injustice in the Bible when God put the receipts in all the history books in your library? Christians need to be good historians. History is the purse that God uses to keep his receipts. Sometimes when God's deliverance seems slow in coming, God is just folding and saving receipts until the appropriate time. God keeps complete receipts. Notice number two, God laughs at his enemies. In verse three, the king asks a very logical question. What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? That question makes sense, right? Someone saves your life, saves the king's life, then it it makes sense that some reward should have been given to that person. But Mordecai had been overlooked. Verse three, the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. That was an injustice to Mordecai. The king owed his life to Mordecai. He at least owed Mordecai a thank you, but nothing has been done. And by this point, it's been four or five years since he has saved the king's life. So now the king wants to correct that omission. He, he wants to reward Mordecai. And this is, this is where we get a glimpse into God's sense of humor. In verse four, the king asked, who is in the court? The young men said, Haman is there standing in the court. Now, it's in the middle of the night. The king can't sleep, according to verse 1. Haman is so eager to to exercise vengeance against Mordecai that he goes there before the break of dawn. He's the only one in the court, apparently. He should have been at home sleep. But he's, on his mind, his vengeance against Mordecai. So the king calls Haman into his chamber and asks the question of of verse 6. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Haman doesn't know the king is thinking about Mordecai. The king doesn't necessarily know that Haman is thinking about himself. Haman hears the question and he thinks to himself, the Bible tells us in verse 6, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I don't know why, but he, he sounds like a Bill Cosby sketch in my head. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And it's at this point, I'm convinced that God is laughing in heaven. you guys do know that God laughs, don't you? One of the things that tickles God is the pride and the hubris of people who think they can defeat God's plans. God gets a kick out of that. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. The psalmist writes there, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Then verse four, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Or Psalm 37, verses 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them, verse 13. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. I think the Lord laughed at Haman. I think the Lord saw Haman's day coming. Haman couldn't see it, but the Lord saw it. Haman was arranging himself against God and against God's chosen people, and God chuckled in heaven. There's going to be a reckoning for the wicked. Now, I think there is comfort in the idea that God laughs at his enemies. It means God does not fear his enemies. God is not nervous about anything his enemies think they want to do against him. He's not nervous and fearful or fretful about accomplishing his plans for his people. The wicked are no match for a holy God. Powerful rulers a little more than puny fools against an omnipresent God. I can't help but think of the Avengers and low-key talking about he's a God and the Hulk smashing him. puny gods. You know what this means? Our God cannot be defeated. He's not even threatened. So why should we worry? Why should we fret? Even when things look terrible, as it did to Mordecai and Esther and all the Jews that night, God smiles in power. I also think a laughing God is a comfort because it means, it means he knows how to have a good time. The Bible repeatedly promises us that there is pleasure and joy in the presence of God. But somehow we tend to imagine God is always somber and dour and serious and strict. But the truth is, God knows how to laugh because it's God who created laughter. It's God who created joy. And it's God who created various kinds of laughter to go with different kinds of joy. Some of us have a belly laugh. Some of us get the laughing real good. We cry. Some of us laugh and we snort, you know. There's all kinds of laughter because there's all kinds of pleasure. And God is the author of them all. Don't you think this is a pretty good indication that the God who created us and created laughter knows how to have the best time? Can you imagine what pure joy and delight awaits us in the presence of this God who laughs? when we're waiting for God's deliverance and dealing with this sinful world's injustice, we should often remember that God laughs at his enemies and that a God who laughs prepares perfect joy for his people. Which brings us to a third thing. We should remember while we wait on God's deliverance that God gives grace to the humble. So Haman's standing there thinking that there's nobody who... The king would like to honor more than him. Believing that the honor is going to be given to him, you know, Haman tries to think of the very best honor he can get. Haman is a guy who who cares about how other people think of him. In fact, he he cares that other people see him as exalted. Exalted. You remember in chapter three, there's a law that's passed that requires that Haman's uh, sort of uh, chair or throne among the other counselors is higher than all the other counselors. That same law requires that everybody, when they see Haman walking by, uh, are, are meant to bow in Haman's presence. And it's that law that Mordecai refuses to obey. Mordecai doesn't rebel one man in the whole kingdom. And that's what has Haman so upset. This one man won't bow to me. So you know he's going to want all the flowers when he's thinking about how to be honored. What does he come up with? Look with me in verses seven and nine. Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor Let royal robes be brought. Look look how he breaks in. Which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden. And on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I mean, Haman's shooting his shot right now, is he? Listen, when he could have imagined anything else, land, riches, power of some other sort, servants. The thing he wanted most was his 15 minutes in the sunshine. As one scholar put it, Haman is a glutton for honor. And I think these verses suggest that he's petty too. There's a reason he wants the king to honor, uh, honor him through a parade in the streets. Deborah Reed writes in her commentary, Haman planned his finest moment to take place directly in front of Mordecai as Mordecai sat in front of the king's gate. It appears that the old hatred has not been forgotten even amidst his present enthusiasm. The thought of Mordecai embitters even the best moments of his life and every moment is an opportunity to score a point against Mordecai. But most of all, I think what verses 7 and 9 show us is that Haman wants to be royalty in the image and likeness of the king. He wants what the king has. He wants to share the king's glory. He wants to be honored by the high as well as the low. He wants the king to speak a well done over his life. And he wants it all during a parade in his honor. In other words, Haman wants everything the gospel promises to the faithful without having a part in the gospel. In the good news of Jesus Christ, here's what God, the true king, promises to all those who follow him. He promises that we will be dressed in righteous robes. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God promises in the gospel that we will ride with Jesus when he returns in glory. Revelation 19 verse 14 says, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. That's us, beloved. The Bible promises when the apostle John gets a vision of the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, John sees there around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on the heads. Those 24 elders represents the, the entire collection of the redeemed. When the angels in Revelation 4 give glory to God, this is what we're told in Revelation 4, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before the throne. And doesn't Matthew 25, 2 and 1 tells us that to the faithful, they will hear the father say, well done, thou good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master? The message of Christianity is a message that tells us how to find honor with God the king. We do not get that honor scheming the way Haman did. We get that honor by being humble and by having faith in God the way Mordecai did. Look with me in verse 10. And the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. That must have stunned Haman. That must have shocked him, man. But it reveals what the Bible tells us over and over, that God exalts the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Those who have faith in God and wait on his deliverance shall be exalted above all of God's enemies. God will even make the enemies of his people proclaim their honor in the streets. Haman is reminded that he is but a servant. He's put in his place with that one verse in verse 10. And while Mordecai, the Jew He despises and wants to kill, receives the king's highest honors. And did you notice what Mordecai did after the parade? Just went back to the city gate, humble, full of faith, waiting still on the Lord's deliverance. Beloved, faith and humility never go unrewarded. God always notices faith. He always notices humility. And our Father in heaven exalts the lowly in spirit. Consider Proverbs 29, 23. It says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. God exalts the humble, gives grace to the humble. But notice now there's a There's a corresponding truth. God humbles the proud. That's what we see in verses 11 to 13. At the same time that God lifts up Mordecai, he brings down Haman. Notice what the Bible tells us. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I mean, try to imagine how sick to his stomach Mordecai, uh, Haman must have been. I mean, I know he had a sore throat. Yelling that in front of Mordecai, I don't know he was embarrassed just the night before. In chapter five, verse fourteen, he has built now a seventy-five-foot-high gallow on which to hang Haman. He just a couple chapters earlier in chapter three, he's gotten the king to pass a law to give him power to kill all the Jewish people in the empire, and now here he is leading the parade, singing the praises of his arch enemy. He was sick. He was was busted. They must have killed him to say that. That, That's why he ran home crying. Like he just got beat up by Debo. Some of y'all get that reference. (laughs) He ran home crying and mourning and put a sack on his head. Listen, can't nobody pull you down off your high horse the way God can pull you down off your high horse? Haman is a picture of what the Bible means when it says God opposes the proud. Notice something else. Once Haman is disgrace, notice the change in the relationship with his wife and his friends. Now, now back in chapter five, the ones who are, that are there with his wife, they were called his friends. Now it's now in chapter 6, they're called his advisors. They've kind of stepped back now. In chapter 5, verse 14, they're like, man, you do what you want to do, man. Go to the king, get permission, hang that dude in the morning, then go to the feast, right? Now they're like, you know what, doc? You're on your own. It looked bad for you. You know, if 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 Mordecai is being exhausted, that means you must gonna be pulled down. They put him up to hang in Mordecai on that big scaffold. Now that the tables are turned, they're willing to let him be hung by himself. Turns out they're not ride or die at all. They're farewell weather friends. Once they see the dark skies and hear the rolling thumber, thunder, they run and hide. They leave Haman hanging. They tell Haman what the Bible tells us everywhere. If you come against God's people, you cannot win. But they are not friends. Beloved, let us learn to sort of be wise about our friendships. Proverbs tells us repeatedly, there are certain friends who will tell us, yeah, let's ride, let's do this, let's do that. But when it goes sideways, they can't be found. Those are not friends, beloved. Don't give yourself to their counsel. Now, here's what we want to observe here with regard to Haman and pride. Not many people in this room are likely to have the kind of pride that would tempt them to try to destroy God's people the way Haman did. I mean, there are not many Hitlers in this room. I hope there's not a single Hitler in this room. Praise God. There are not many people in here who would be persecutors of the church. But there is a form of pride that is very common that God very much opposes. That is the pride that makes a person refuse to repent of their sin. Impenitence or not repenting is just pride. It's hubris. I mean, which of us, which of us does not know that they are sinners? We're all sinners. We all have sin. Just my mentioning that, you probably had some examples to come to mind. Now, which of us have not repented of our sin? Okay, that's the kind of pride that is eternally dangerous. That's the kind of pride that refuses to admit to God, who already knows the truth, the truth that we know about ourselves. That we have disobeyed God. That we have done wrong. That our hearts are often wrong. And that despite our best efforts, we've never been able to fix the problem. It's Because we are sinners. And that willingness to remain in sin instead of turn to God for forgiveness and cleansing will get us God's final judgment in hell. God will humble us forever. And we will suffer the punishment of God forever because of our foolish pride. Don't be that person. Confess your pride and turn away from your sin. Turn back to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Trust Jesus to be your Lord. Trust Jesus to rescue you from judgment. That's what the cross is. That's what the resurrection is. It's God's rescue plan. It's how God planned to save us from the judgment that is coming upon the world because of sin he gave his son to die for us and to there on the cross be punished in our place for our sin. And three days later, he raised him from the grave to prove to us that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted and death has been defeated. Judgment has been satisfied and life is freely offered to everyone humble enough to confess their sin, turn away from it and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you need to do that this morning, don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Do not delay. Repent and believe so you might live forever in God's love and live forever free of God's wrath and judgment. Believe the gospel and live. Which brings us to our fifth and final point that God has perfect timing. As we've mentioned a few times, God is, again, not mentioned directly in the book of Esther. However, God is everywhere present in the book of Esther. And Esther 6 gives us a, a pretty good profile of God's work in delivering his people. And, and we see just through this chapter, the, the perfection of God's It's just as the, the gospel singers tell us, right? That he might not come when you want it, but he'll be there right on time. This is what we see. Consider verse one again. We're going to skim the chapter again real quick. Consider verse one, how it starts on that night. Well, what night was that? we we'll look back in Esther chapter five, verse 14. It was the night when Haman's wife Zeresh and all his friends, they were friends then, said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So he spent that evening building a a scaffold to hang um, Mordecai on and couldn't even go to bed. That night, he went to see the king. But that night, on that very night, verse 1 tells us that the king couldn't sleep. In the Hebrew, it says sleep was made to flee from him. That's a hint that that he didn't sort of stay up all night playing Xbox, that, that, that God took from him sleep. God made him restless that night. God's timing was perfect because Mordecai would certainly have been killed in the wee hours of the next morning. God was right on time. Notice the second way we see God's perfect timing. It's in verses four and five. It's the middle of the night. King can't sleep. Haman should have been asleep at his own house, but Haman's eager to hang Mordecai, couldn't wait. He's there in the palace, almost standing where Esther would have been standing when she was waiting to see the king. Across the palace, outside the king's chamber, and the king asked the question, is anybody in the court? And the young men say, Haman. Here is what you must understand. Haman's impatience is simply a result of God's timing. The king asked Haman to be brought in and the rest is history. So begins the deliverance of God's people. Let me give me one more instance of timing. The chapter ends with verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. See, by this point, it's clear that Haman, uh, excuse me, Haman has lost control. Events are happening to him, not by him. Before he can get it together, before he can get over his embarrassment, the next stage in God's plan is right on top of him. And that's because God was in control all along. God's plan is swallowing up Haman's plan. God's timetable is hurrying Haman to his end. God's timing is perfect. We have to remember that while we are waiting on his deliverance. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on Esther, writes this. I thought it summed it up very well. It helps us to understand that our ordinary lives even our suffering and our worry about our lives is is actually on God's timetable. It's considered in God's plan. She writes this, God providentially directs the flow of human history through the ordinary lives of individuals to fulfill the promises of his covenant. What a great God we serve. Any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then. But our God is so great, so powerful that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night. Because a man would not bow to his superior because a woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. How inscrutable are the ways of the Lord. Do you see what she's saying? Our ordinary lives and the ordinary moments in our lives are the things that God all time uses to accomplish his purposes. This means that changing diapers, doing homework, taking out the trash, going to work on time, going to work late, washing dishes, even losing sleep, God uses all of it in his plans. This gives even the most ordinary lives, the most boring lives as we think about them, eternal significance. Your life matters in God's plan, beloved. You matter in God's plan. Your actions are used by God to fulfill his plans. Do you believe that? I mean, believing that and knowing that will change your life. I hope you believe it because it's true. If God can use a sleepless night to save a whole race of people, what can God do with us? What can he do with his people today? Here's another application for us. that one of the hardest things to do in life, especially when we're suffering injustice, is to trust God's timing. But that's precisely what we have to do. God so often looks like he's going to be late. And if it were up to us, let's tell the truth. Certain things would never happen in our life. You know, certain kinds of suffering and hardship and pain we just would never experience because if, if God was on our timetable, he would have been there early. Right? We'd be like Mary and Martha, right? Who questioned Jesus when Lazarus died. You remember? Jesus got there a little late. Lazarus has died. He's buried. They're they like, where were you at? If you had been here, Lord, he would not have died. And what does Jesus say to him? No, this has happened basically so you can see the Lord's glory. Right? And so it is with us. His timing may not be what we want. We, we, we often want to live on our own timing, but beloved, God's timing is best. Trust Him in it. He's infinitely wise. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time, all the time. He ain't miss you. He ain't forget about an appointment. He didn't, he didn't. He don't need to send you a rain check. God is going to be perfect in His timing, especially when it comes to our deliverance. He does everything well. Galatians four four says, "But when the fullness of time had come," in other words, in God's perfect timing, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as yes. sons. At precisely the right time, God sent his son into the world to save us and to make us children of God. Well, think about 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, where Paul writes there, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony, notice, given at the proper time. Just the right time, the Son of God stepped into the world in human flesh to give Himself as a ransom for our sins, to redeem us from judgment, and to make us God's own children. Deliverance is always on God's schedule. Whether it's deliverance from earthly enemies and injustice, like the Jews delivered uh, from Haman, or whether it's our individual deliverance from sin and death and judgment and hell. Through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is always salvation and deliverance is always on God's time. So we must learn to trust his timing. We must wait upon his deliverance. We still have to pray and we still have to take actions and to do certain things like Mordecai and Esther. We still must give attention to the gospel and repent and believe, but it all happens under God's divine scheduling. Beloved, it's no mistake that you are here sitting in that very seat this morning or watching online. You might not have even wanted to come. Your ride was coming and you have no other way home. But you find yourself here. And I wonder if you are alert enough spiritually to ask yourself why. Why here? Why this morning? Why this sermon? Might it be that God wanted you here? Could it be that this is a divine appointment for you so that you might be delivered by God? All of our testimonies could be told as a series of just happened. My coming to Christ just happened in the aftermath of a miscarriage my wife and I had. And I just happened to be at home on a Tuesday morning when I should have been at work, at home watching BET. And Reverend John Cherry just happened to come on Tuesday mornings at 10 o'clock. And he just happened to be preaching through Timothy, a sermon on the life of the Christian mind, a study to show yourself approved. And I just happened to get a sense that, wait a minute, there are thinking Christians in the world. And I just happened to take an interest in his television program and began to record his his sermons on VHS tapes. Some of y'all will remember that. That technology just happened to work. And after several months, we discovered that his church just happened to be in Temple Hills, Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C. And my sister-in-law just happened to live in Marbury Plaza on Good Hope Road. And it just happened that the godfather of our children, his aunt, was a member of that church. And it just happened that she could give us some cues about how to get there early so we could actually be in the service and and hear the sermon. And we were sitting about 10 rows in front of the pulpit, and he just happened to preach Exodus 32, a sermon called, What Does It Take to Make You Angry? A sermon based on a text in Israel history where they worshiped the a false God, made an idol out of gold, made a bull idol that they worship. I just happened to have been an idolater myself. I just happened to have left Islam several months before. And I just happened to be an angry young man sitting out there with questions for God. And he just happened to preach the gospel from Exodus 32. And let me tell you what just happened. At the end of that sermon, it just happened that my wife and I both responded to the gospel, repented of sin, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's how I just happened to be your pastor this morning. Don't you know? Don't you know that all those things that just happened in your life are in the hands of a God who controls the whole world? Trust his timing. Trust his work. He's so good. He's so good. That's how something as painful as a miscarriage led to eternal life for us. Because he was working and the timing and the events and all the things where we couldn't see his hand, his hand was still there. We need to hold on to that while we're waiting on deliverance and looking for God. Beloved, it just happens that you're here this morning. And it just happens that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to trust in Jesus. Today is the day to confess sin. Today is the day to call upon his name as your savior, to put your faith in him as the one who will rescue you from the judgment of God to come, who will make you his own son and daughter and give you a part in his eternal kingdom. Don't wait, do it today because it just happens that you have another breath and the next one's not promised. Use what breath you have to call upon the name of the Lord. Pray, Father, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. I deserve judgment and death and hell. But you promised that if I would put my faith in Jesus, your son, his righteousness would be my righteousness. Forgiveness would be mine through faith in him. That I would have a new relationship with you and that I would have eternal life with you. I want that. Would you give that to me? I believe. Help me, Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord this morning so that you might be saved. And if you do that, talk with us after the service. Talk with the Christian friend who brought you. We want to encourage you. We want to help you understand more about who God is and about who Jesus is. But use this moment of prayer that we're about to have right now to call upon the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we stand before you again. People in need of you. Whether we have known you for years and years, or whether we are just now really for the first time considering your gospel, We need you. We believe that you are alive. We believe that you are good. We believe that you rule the universe. We believe that there are no coincidences, not in a world that is ruled by a sovereign God. And we believe that you have appointed us to come here and to, to hear your word this morning. We believe you've spoken through your word. Give us now the response of faith, whether it is a faith that is old and mature, oh Lord, grant us a, an even deeper maturity, or whether it's the, the faith of someone who is even right now being born again by your spirit, a new faith, a new trust in Jesus, a, an awareness of a, of a supernatural life, a new life now in them, Lord, uh, Lord. Start them well, trusting you. And we wait for your return, Lord Jesus, when we shall ride with you on white horses and wear crowns that we will cast at your feet, dressed in white robes of righteousness and salvation. We pray, come quickly, Lord. Keep us, O Lord, in the faith and keep us strong until you come. Lord, we long to see. Your churches and your kingdom filled with people who have come to believe in Jesus. Just as you've done that in our hearts, do that in the hearts of others here this morning, others watching online, others whom we speak to in the neighborhood or in the workplace or at school this week. Lord, would you, would you save? Would you give people eternal life through this good news of your son? We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.